let me pray, and then we'll jump right into this passage. Um, Father, we thank you for your word. Lord, we thank you that it corrects us and it trains us uh, in righteousness uh, and how to love you and how to know you and how to follow you. Lord, I pray that your spirit would be at work as we look at it this morning. In Jesus' name, amen. A couple weeks ago, uh, we had a family member visiting from out of town, and she, uh, they were out shopping, um, and she bought some earrings for Emmy. And these were like really cool earrings. Uh, they were um, rainbow moonstone earrings, is what these were. And uh, with the earrings, uh, they came in this nice little pouch, and inside the pouch was a little slip of paper. And here's what the little slip of paper said. Uh, rainbow moonstone earrings. Rainbow Moonstone activates and aligns all the chakras, allowing energy to flow freely throughout the body. It forms a shield around the aura, protecting one from negative influences and psychic attacks. It is a powerful emotional healer and is recommended for those who carry old emotional wounds. It aids in eliminating self-doubt and fear and encourages one to take on new opportunities that may come their way. Wow. How much did those cost? <laughs> because if they can do all of that, are you wearing them right now? Are they? Your aura is showing you're not wearing them. <laughs> if they could do all, if they could protect you from negative influences, if they could eliminate self-doubt and fear, if they can really help heal old emotional wounds, those should cost a fortune if they could do all of that. Um, you know, and some of you, by your laughter, you hear me and you think, what a load of rubbish. Of course, some earrings can't do that. Uh, but there are others, probably the person who made these earrings, who think, well, maybe, I mean, just maybe, maybe the rainbow moonstone can do that. And what that kind of thinking betrays is even though, broadly speaking, Los Angeles as a culture has, has effectively canceled God, there is an openness that something bigger than you and I can intervene in our lives to make our lives better. And the passage that we're looking at today, it, it makes the very same assumption that it's possible for God to intervene in our lives. And uh, two weeks ago and today and next week, we're going through a portion of the Bible where the, the central character is not a person, but is something called the Ark of the Covenant. And so what is the Ark of the Covenant? Well, the, the word Ark, it just translates a Hebrew word that means chest or, or box. And it's a wooden box overlaid with gold, and it was a little more than uh, four feet long and only about a little less than two feet high and, and wide. Um, and it wasn't very big. And the whole thing was overlaid with gold, and on the top were two angels carved out of gold on either end, and in the middle, a big giant chunk of gold called the mercy seat. And it was said that the presence of God dwelt over the mercy seat. And so the ark was the central piece of furniture in the tabernacle, which was the place of worship. It, it, was, it was in this holy place, but it, the ark wasn't held just in the holy place. It was held in a holy place inside the holy place called the Holy of Holies. And over the ark dwelt the glory of God. Remember that word from a couple weeks ago? The glory, the kavod of God. And when the ark was taken from Israel, do you remember what Phineas' wife said? She said that the glory had departed. And so she, she named her son Ichabod, Ichavod, no more glory. And so the Ark of the Covenant was this item that represented the presence. It represented the glory of God. And wherever the Ark was, there was the presence of God. So that's the Ark of the Covenant. 
And talking about something like this to a modern person sounds a bit like a superstitious old wives tale. That's the fairy tale part of the story coming in. The idea that God's presence would be so connected to a physical object that you could somehow access God's power and protection and healing through it. In other words, that God could intervene into your life. It sounds a little bit far-fetched until, until in 21st century Los Angeles you buy some earrings. And all of a sudden, it doesn't sound so far-fetched anymore. But even the person who's hoping some earrings will intervene in their life, they're asking the same question. They're wondering, can God, could a God actually intervene in my life? And if he can, then the next question is, is how much of that God do you want in your life? And most people in Los Angeles, they either want something of God in their life, you know, a little bit, enough to help them with some problem or some goal in life, or they want nothing of God at all. And so can you relate to that? Like, even if you're a Christian, is it possible that, that you, you just want some of God in your life, but not necessarily all of him? You want the part of God that will make you successful, but not the part that will allow you or even cause you to suffer. The part of God that will bring the emotional healing, but not the part of God that will confront you and hold you accountable. And the passage we're looking at today, it deals with that same dynamic. The Philistines, they capture the ark, and at first they want some of God, right? They want some of what he has to offer. That's the first half of the passage. That's verses one to five. And then they want nothing of God at all. That's the second half of the passage. But there is a third way that they and many of us today totally reject. They, they could have all of God. And that's actually hidden away in verse 12. So three movements in our text today. Some of God, verses 1 to 5. None of God, verses 6 to 11. And all of God, verse 12. So first, let's look at some of God. And so the Philistines, they, they capture the ark from Israel, but they do something interesting with it. They actually take it to the temple of their God. Now, why do they do that? Why would they do that? Why don't they just melt it down for the gold? Well, they don't melt it because, like the earrings, they believe the ark had some power to it. Remember in the passage two weeks ago when Israel brought the ark to the battlefront, the Philistines, remember, they were actually terrified. They, they actually said in chapter 4 when the ark shows up in the, at the battlefront, they'll say, oh, no, we're doomed. It's done for us. Now, why would they say that? Well, it's because they believed the ark had some power in it. But then did you notice what they did with it? They didn't melt it down for the gold. They didn't build its own temple. Look again at verse 2. Then they carried the ark into Dagon's temple and set it beside Dagon. Now, what is that about? Well, it was the Philistines' way of saying, our God beat your God. We went into battle, and our two gods clashed in the heavenlies, and our God beat your God, and that's why we defeated your whole army. Our God's bigger than your God, and now the God of Israel serves Dagon, the God of the Philistines. That's what they're saying with it. Uh, when I was younger, my friends on a Friday night or Saturday night or many weekends, both nights, uh, would get together and have these great, amazing parties where we would play Risk. I know, wild and crazy times back then. And we had this rule that if you took somebody else off the board early in the game, uh, then for the rest of the night, while everyone else is still playing, that person had to serve you. So they had to fill your drink, they had to bring you snacks. If there wasn't a snack at the house that you wanted, they had to go out and get it. Like it was, they had to do everything for you. That's the picture here. Dagon took 
Israel's God, Yahweh, off the board. He beat Yahweh, and so now Israel's God serves Dagon. That's the statement that the Philistines are making by putting the Ark of God in the Temple of Dagon. Now, what that really means is they want some of God, but not all of him. They know the stories of what the God of Israel did to bring them up out of Egypt and to conquer the land of Canaan. They actually talked about it. If you go back to chapter 4, they actually talk about it there. Uh, they, they're, they're, they know this God is powerful. And so what they want is God's power, but not his authority. It's almost like they're, they're trying to just collect some of the attributes of God they want. They like this one, and they like that one, and they like this one, but leaving behind the ones that they don't want. And so in this case, they want his power, but not his authority. And so they've placed him under the authority of another God. So do you see what's happening here? They want some of God. They're actually trying to manipulate God. And when you think about it, it's not that different from how you and I tend to approach God, is it? God, I'll take your power. I'll take your knowledge. I'll take your love. I'll take your wisdom. But if you don't mind, could you please leave behind your authority and your wrath and your sovereignty? I'll handle the authority and the sovereignty. Thank you very much. In other words, what we're saying is, I want some of God, but not all of him. Are your prayers like that? Always telling God just how it is that you want it. Saying, my will be done, and not pausing instead to say, yet yeah, not my will, but thy will be done. Well, let's take it a step further. Is your attitude like that? Angry at God? Because he's not bending to your sovereign will and authority to give you that job or that husband or that house or that opportunity or that child in this timing. Because as long as you're approaching God in that way, all you've done is pick him up and place him in someone else's temple, your own personal Dagon. But you see, God will never stand for that. C.S. Lewis wrote in a book, he's reflecting after his wife passed away, and he said, God is the great iconoclast. Do you know what an iconoclast is? It's somebody who goes around smashing idols, little, little statues you know, that depict the gods or saints or something like that. An iconoclast is somebody who goes around and smashes them. And so Lewis says, God is the great iconoclast. He kicks out the walls of any temples we may build because God wants to give us more of himself. And he goes on to say, I need Christ, not something that resembles him. And of course, in our text, God doesn't stand for it. He doesn't allow himself to be subdued by an idol, by a false god. And, and the next few verses actually read like a comedy. It says in verse 3 that when, when the, the Philistines wake up the next morning, you know, they go into the temple all excited to see you know, Israel's God subjected to their God, and they walk inside, and uh, what do they see? The huge statue of Dagon fallen flat on his face in front of this little box. Oh, whoopsie, that's a little embarrassing. Let's just stand him back up, they say. And then they go to bed that night, 
And they come back the next morning, and not only had Dagon now fallen over again, but it says his head and his hands were smashed to pieces. Now, that's not just detail that's in there for fun, though it is a fun detail. It's saying something very profound. Because in the ancient world, when you defeated someone, when you really wanted to show off your victory and your authority over that person or that group of people, do you know what they would do? It's pretty gruesome, but they would cut off the head and the hands of the person they defeated. That's why years later, when David defeats Goliath, the giant Philistine, what does he do? Do you remember? He cuts off his head to say, we defeated him. In other words, what this text is saying is that you thought you defeated Yahweh, the God of Israel. Not so. Not so, because Yahweh took Dagon's head and hands. Now, what is that telling us? It's telling us that no matter how hard you try to only have some of God, no matter how hard you try to to try to manipulate God to serve you, he's going to smash your idols. And so if you put God in a temple of your own making, trying to get some of him but not all of him, I promise you, all of him is much better than some of him. And we'll get to that in a moment because what we see in the next few verses, verses 6 to 11, is that the end result of only seeking some of God is that eventually you want none of God. That's what it does to your heart, and that's point two, none of God. Now, if the last few verses read like a comedy, this one reads like a tragedy. Because in verse 6, all of a sudden, everyone in the city of Ashdod, where the, the Ark of the Covenant is being stored in the, tem- the Temple of Dagon, uh, everybody there, they, they actually have their own personal citywide epidemic that reads almost like it's the uh, bubonic plague. And so in verse 6, it says they were inflicted with tumors. Over in the next chapter, it talks about some rats that were running around and destroying the land. And so some scholars think that the tumors, which is a Hebrew word that actually just means something like growth, uh, could just as easily be translated as boils, like the ones associated with the bubonic plague. And so most scholars think that's what's happening here. Some rats have come, and they've brought the plague. And that's what's going on. This is the tragedy coming in. And, and it's, there's a really interesting play on words between verses 1 to 5 and in verses 6 to 11. And 1 to 5, remember, we read of Dagon's hands being smashed to pieces. But here in verse 6, did you notice what it said? It says that the Lord's what? Hand was heavy on the people of Ashdod. So one God loses his hands and the other one uses them. And then do you remember from a couple of weeks ago that word heavy? Do you remember that word? Talking about Eli. It's like one of the few times in the Bible where it actually talks about somebody's weight. And it says he was heavy. And remember, that's related to the word glory, kavod. And what this is saying is that the Lord's hand, even though he might be sitting in Dagon's temple, the Lord's hand is still glorious. The Lord's hand is still heavy. Despite being in foreign territory, despite being put into another God's temple, not only did the Lord smash the hands of that God, but the Lord's hand is heavy. It's glorious. And then what happens in Ashdod also happens in Gath. And so there's a little bit of comedy in the tragedy part here. Because in verse 8, the leaders of the Philistines get together and they determine that it must be the ark that's causing the plague. And so their response is, hey, let's, move it to, let's move it to Gath. Let's let them have it for a while. And so they send it, verse 8, to Gath, a city. By the way, if you look at a map, it's a city that's a little bit closer to Israel's border. But the same plague breaks out there. And then they get the idea, once it's killing people in 
in Gath that they should send it off to Ekron, which is a border town that frequently changed hands between the Philistines and Israel. And so you can begin to see their logic here. They're like, hey, if we could just get it a little bit closer to the border, it'll be better. Oh, that didn't work. Okay, let's put it on the border. And this is like a disputed territory, so it's kind of God's territory, so maybe that will be okay. Well, it, it's not. The plague strikes in Ekron, too. And by the time it gets to Ekron, it has a reputation. The people in Ekron think that they're being sentenced to death by the leaders of the Philistines. And so verse 11, look what they decide. So they called together all the rulers of the Philistines and said, send the ark of God to Israel. Uh, send the ark of uh, the God of Israel away. Let it go back to its own place or it will kill us and our people. For death had filled the city with panic. And then there it is again. God's hand was very heavy on it. And there's that word heavy, the word glory. And so what do they decide to do? Send it away. In other words, if we cannot manipulate the ark of God, if we can't control God and bend him to our will, if God won't do for us what we want, if God is going to get on with doing what he wants, then we won't have just some of him. We'll have none of him. That is almost always the end result of only seeking to have some of God in your life. Eventually, you'll say, do you know what? I want none of him. And maybe that's been you for a long time now. Maybe you're just on the verge of sending God away. And perhaps coming to church today, maybe that's your last-ditch effort to get God to do for you what you want. And if that prayer isn't answered, well then... Send him back to where he came from. Because he's no good. He's no use to you anyway. But isn't that interesting, the order that we put things in? We want so badly for God to intervene in our lives. To take away our struggles, our pain, to provide for us the things that we think will make our life better. And yet when we do all the dictating of just how God should do that for us, isn't that more like us trying to intervene into his life than into ours? Hey God, would you just set aside your all-wise, sovereign, authoritative plan for everything to happen in perfect timing around the world so that you could do this little thing for me? Isn't that us just trying to intervene into God's life? But if you read the Bible, what you find and what we really saw in verses 1 to 5 is that God is subject to no one. Some of you will remember when we looked at the book of Joshua about a year ago, there's this great passage where Joshua is about to go into battle and he meets the commander of the army of the Lord. In other words, it's actually like a manifestation of God himself. And so he meets the commander of the army of the Lord. He meets God himself. And Joshua says to him, hey, are you on my side or my enemy's side? Are you for me or against me? And he says, neither. Actually, it's, it is stronger. He actually, in the Hebrew, it's just the word no. God, are you for me or against me? No. That's what he says. 
And so don't you see that God alone has all authority? God alone is the transcendent one. God alone is the eternally existing, uncaused creator and sovereign sustainer of all things. That, that God alone is wise, that God alone is holy, that God alone knows all things, that he actually knows every word that was going to be on your tongue before you even thought to say it. It's his world that we have the privilege to live in. And yet somehow we have determined that we are the ones who should dictate to him what he should do to intervene in our lives. And so we want to come to God like Joshua did and ask God to bend the knee to us. And yet do you remember what the Lord said to Joshua after Joshua asked God to join his side in the battle? Joshua chapter 5, verse 15. Take off your sandals, for the place where you are standing is holy. In other words, Joshua, you bow the knee to me. And yet think about how we often approach God. When he doesn't do what we want him to do, what do we do? We send him away. God, this marriage isn't turning out how I planned. Aren't you on my side? God, my career isn't headed in the direction at the pace that I asked you for. Aren't you on my side? God, I'm still struggling with anxiety. God, that person is still sick. I'm still waiting for the right woman or man to come along. Aren't you on my side? And do you see what we've done when we do that? We, we've reversed the natural order of things. In a sense, we become God, and God becomes our servant. We want God to bow the knee to us. Now, just think about your prayers and your conversations with God lately. Who's the servant? Who's serving who? Who's the one with the authority? God, you better do this. You better do Come on, God. You just stop dragging your feet. It's about time. And maybe it's not as crass as that, but remember who it is that formed the first man out of the dust of the ground and breathed life into his lungs. Remember what the psalmist says about how God formed you and knit you together in your mother's womb. We often start out on our journey with God like the Philistines, wanting some of God. We put them in our self-made temples and we ask God to enhance our lives. And then when he does what God does, when he smashes the idols, when he kicks out the walls of the temple that we try to put him in, then we want none of him. We send him away. Now, if you're on the verge of having none of God or if you've been trying to only have some of God, there is a third option a third way, and that's to have all of God. And actually, there's a better way to put that. It's to flip it around and say the third way is for God to have all of you. Now look again at verse 12. It's, it only hints at this in here, but look at verse 12. Those who did not die were afflicted with tumors, and the outcry of the city went up to heaven. Now, the point of this, I think, is to say that there were some in Ekron who who finally stopped trying to manipulate God. They stopped appealing to their own idols, to their own gods, and they finally turned to God himself. Put it another way, they finally acknowledged the absolute sovereignty, the, the power, the, the authority of, 
of the God whose presence dwelt above the Ark of the Covenant. And as first, it doesn't get us all the way there, but what it's hinting at is the way to get all of God, or better for God to get all of you, is, is to exalt him. Is to exalt him and therefore humble yourself. To bow the knee. A few years ago, Emmy and I were on vacation in this coastal city, and the city, like I said, it was on the sea, and, and just you know, a couple miles offshore were these three islands. And uh, they were kind of uninhabited islands, but there were some cafes on there, and there's some really nice beaches, and uh, some caves that you could go in. And the way to get there was to, to rent a wave runner. And if you know me, you know that I was terrified of this idea, but because I love Emmy, I was like, sure, we'll do it. And so we rent the Wave Runner, and we're down there, and the guy's explaining to me how to not die. And he says, um, just so you know, it, it, we had a storm, and so the, the waves are pretty high. It's really choppy. Um, and so if you don't want to sink the Wave Runner, which I'm like, is that a possibility? Because the Kraken is out there, and, and it'll have us as an appetizer. Uh, he said, if you don't want to sink the Wave Runner, um, you're going to have to go faster than you feel is actually safe. Because if he goes too slow, then you're going to catch the nose in a wave, and it's going to sink. And so you have to go faster than you feel like is safe. So it's safer to go fast than to go slow. It's safer to use all of the throttle rather than some of it, and certainly safer to use all of it rather than none of it. And this is what our text is so vi vividly pointing out that it's safer to have all of God than some of him, and certainly safer to have all of him than none of him. So how do you get all of God? Well, it's, it's, conceptually, it's very simple. It's actually quite difficult to do. But conceptually, it's very simple. You exalt God to the highest place, the highest place in your life, which then causes you to humble yourself. Exalt God to the highest place, humble yourself. And I'll tell you how you can do those two things in a minute, but first let me tell you why you can do them. In our passage today, it says that the presence of God or the glory of God dwelt with this piece of furniture, with the Ark of the Covenant, this box overlaid in gold. But when you get to the New Testament, it actually says that God dwelt with his people in a person, that God's very presence, his glory came and lived on earth in the person of Jesus Christ, of God the Son, somebody who is fully God and fully man. And in John chapter 1, when it introduces Jesus Christ, it says this about him, John 1:14, The word became flesh and made his dwelling among us. We have seen his glory, the glory of the one and only Son who came from the Father full of grace and truth. It says somewhere else that Jesus is the exact representation of the being of God in the person of a human. Now, Jesus Christ said something really um, profound about himself, something extraordinary in Matthew chapter 20. So think of God in his glory. Think of the glorious God taken on human flesh. And we've been saying that we're to serve God rather than him serving us that we're to bow the knee to him. But there is a spot where God wants to bow the knee to us. Matthew chapter 20, verse 28, he says, the son of man, that's his title for himself, the son of man 
did not come to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. And the idea that Jesus is expressing here is that rather than, like in our story, God has been captured, what he's saying is, you and I have been captured. We've been captured by our sin. We've been captured by our idolatry, by Satan himself, each and every one of us held captive by our shame and our guilt and our sin. And what God did in the person of Jesus Christ is come to earth on a rescue mission where he would bow the knee, where he would humble himself. He does it to take us back from enemy-occupied territory and to give us all of himself. And the way he did that was by allowing himself to be defeated. Now, you remember in our story how Dagon fell, how his head and his hands were crushed? Well, for Dagon, that was against his will. But Jesus Christ also had his head lowered, his hands pierced. The Bible says that Jesus Christ was crushed for our iniquities. He was pierced for our transgressions, that he chose in humility to lower himself to the point of death on a cross. And when Jesus Christ went to the cross, he, he gave us all of himself. Because what happened when Jesus died on the cross is two things. Number one, for those who are trusting in Jesus Christ for salvation, get this, it means that all of you was placed on him. All of your sin, all of your guilt, all of your shame, your rejection of God was placed on Jesus Christ. But number two, for those who are trusting in Jesus Christ for salvation, do you know what that means? It means that all of Christ was placed on you. All of his goodness, all of his righteousness, all of his virtuousness, all of his peace, all of his glory placed on you. That's the cross. That's what God does when he comes to dwell on earth. And this is the exceptionally good news of the Christian gospel that each and every one of us can receive renewal in Jesus Christ. And here's what that means for those, those who do experience renewal in Jesus Christ. Do you remember the earrings? Remember the moonstones? Remember what they promised? Protection from negative influences. The ability to overcome old emotional wounds. The elimination of self-doubt and fear. Do you know what the Bible promises those who are trusting in Christ rather than some earrings? 1 John 1, 9, if we confess our sins, he is faithful and just and will forgive us our sins and purify us from all unrighteousness. Romans 8, verse 1, therefore there is now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Romans 8, 37, all these things we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. For I am convinced that neither life nor death, neither angels, nor demons, neither the present, nor the future, nor any powers, neither height, nor depth, nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God that is in Christ Jesus our Lord. 2 Corinthians 5.17. You want to be rid of those old wounds? Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, the new creation has come, the old is gone, the new is here. And if you read on to the future, by the way, Revelation chapter 21, talking about the day when Jesus will bring with him the new heavens and the new earth, it says he will wipe every tear from their eyes. 
There will be no more death or mourning or crying or pain for the old order of things has passed away. There's not going to be any gates in that city because we won't need to be protected from anything because Jesus Christ will be the one who's protecting us. This is what it is to have all of God, or better yet, for God to have all of you. So how do you get that? Well, you exalt God to the highest place in your life. And then you humble yourself. First, you exalt God to the highest place in your life. You, you invite God to take the position of authority in your life. And you actually make him your God. And second, that causes you then to humble yourself. And the way to do that is to admit that you've been playing God. And playing God has not only caused you to sin in your selfishness, but it's actually a way that you've rejected God's lordship over you. And so you ask him for forgiveness. You humble yourself. That's how a person becomes a Christian. But by the way, it's also how a person goes on living as a Christian. Consistently in your life, exalting God to the highest place, worshiping him, praising him, giving him the authority and the sovereignty over your life, which causes you then to remember that you are not Lord, confessing and repenting of the ways that you try to make God serve you. Humbling yourself. So how do you do that consistently? Well, Daniel mentioned at the start here at Christ Church, we talk about four postures of worship. Up, down, up, and out. Up, to exalt God, to worship him. Down, to confess, to bring your brokenness, to admit that you're not God. Lifted up by the good news of the gospel. And then sent out to live in light of what God has to say to you. This is the simplest way that I can think to describe how you get all of God. Or he gets all of you consistently throughout your life to go through these four postures. If you regularly move through those four postures weekly as we gather here on Sundays, daily in your own time with the Lord, in your conversations with other people, in your prayers as you ask God for things throughout the day, if you regularly move through up, down, up, out, you will find yourself more and more, not just wanting some of God, but wanting all of him. Now, what does that look like? I'll, what does it look like? Well, I'll tell you that, and then I'll close. So say you're the person who wants your family to look a certain way, you know, a certain number of children. Or the person who desperately wants the spouse, or the person who wants the, the next career move. Whatever it is, take those desires and put them through up, down, up, and out. Up, exalting God as the only wise God, all sovereign God, who is good and who gives good gifts to his children in his timing, not yours. Down, then confessing your desire to dictate what God does, searching your heart for selfish motivations, identifying the idols that you're worshiping other than God, the, the idols that you sort of place God next to. Up, giving thanks to God for the good gifts he's already given you, the family you do have, the friends you do have, the job that you do have. Giving thanks for the ways that God's wisdom and providence is already working itself out in your life. And then out, then it's asking God to provide his sovereign goodwill for your family, your relationships, your work, whatever it is, in his timing. That's what it looks like. The person who is consistently praying like that is the person who finds over time they don't just have some of God, they have all of him. And even better, he has all of you. Let me pray. Our Father, we thank you for the incredible good news that if we turn to Christ, he takes all of us on himself. 
And in return, he gives us all of him. Lord, forgive us for the ways that we have tried to manipulate you. We've only wanted some of you or we've sent you away. Lord, may through the person of Jesus Christ and your Holy Spirit that you give to dwell inside of us, may we have all of you. And Lord, would you have all of us? We ask it in your son's name. Amen.